calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. Hey guys, welcome back. It's Wednesday, it's hump day. It means another episode of Awkward Sex in the City, your favorite podcast about sex, relationships, and now COVID. Uh, I hope you guys are doing good. I hope you guys are washing your hands. I almost said brushing your teeth, and I was like, I mean, I guess, like, you don't want gingivitis, but what else? I'm really excited for you guys. Uh, to listen to this episode because these are actually one of my favorite types of episodes where I actually don't know the guest at all. You actually might know him. You might recognize him from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend or Glee or one of my favorite movies, Love, Simon. Clark Moore. Clark has a brand new podcast called Soul Bomb by Clark Moore. And if you like Awkward Sex in the City, I think you're going to really like this podcast too. It's very, it's very soothing and it's very introspective and it's very, very vulnerable about like very real conversations of kind of like how we're taking care of ourselves, especially right now during 2020. And I think that's something we talk about a lot in Awkward Sex. And I really just, I really think you're going to love it. It's just, you feel like... You feel like someone's hugging you while you're listening to Clark and, the, and his guest, and he's got already so many amazing people on. So when you're done with this, check it out. Go subscribe. Remember Soul Bomb by Clark Moore and go follow him on Instagram at Mr. Clark Moore. I'm always so honored and humbled when I have a guest that I just either don't know well or don't know at all when they're so willing to get very, very honest with me, a, a literal stranger. And so I want to thank Clark again. This was a very fun conversation on a Friday afternoon, and I can't wait to have him back too. And I think you guys are going to love it. Remember to rate, like, subscribe, go to the Patreon at Patreon backslash Awkward Sex in the City and go rate, like, and subscribe Soul Bomb by Clark Moore. Enjoy. Let's talk about your podcast first. So it's brand new. Soul Bomb. Soul Bomb. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's, you know, I think 
part of it is an, an outgrowth of this time. You know, we're dealing with a lot of really heavy things constantly. And I've heard a lot of conversation recently about acknowledging the sort of daily stress that's going on in the background that we're not really aware of. And that, you know, you're just going through the grocery store, you think it's a normal day, and then all of a sudden someone does something that normally wouldn't bother you. But for some reason, you just go off, you go crazy, and it just like triggers you in a weird way. And people are kind of feeling all of these weird heightened emotions. And and then they're remembering, oh, right, of course I feel this. I'm having constant anxiety and stress all day long because of all the many things that are not normal about this time right now. And so I really wanted to, like the name Soul Bomb comes from this idea of um, first I was thinking like, what makes me feel good? You know, self-care. And I was thinking of like coconut oil and shea butter and lotions and creams and serums, all these things that we sort of do as a daily practice to take care of ourselves. And this idea that the work we're doing now is taxing and it's exhausting. And so we have to take care of ourselves while we're doing it so that we can avoid burnout, so that we can continue to have these tough conversations without feeling like I don't have the energy for it anymore. So, I mean, that, and then as you can see with my long-winded answer to your very simple question, I love to talk. So I was like, put a mic in front of me and let's let's monetize that baby. I, I love it. I think this is very important. I actually had someone, a good friend of mine, texting me today asking like what they do for self-care. And so this is on everyone's minds right now. And just having yeah. a place or having a podcast like this to listen to, to see that other people are going through it and still learning how to do like the tough conversations while taking care of themselves. Like that's, that's like chef's kiss, like beautiful. Mm. I love this. Thank you. Yeah. I hope, you know, I hope people find something from it. I kind of feel like it's a double entendre in that we talk about people's soul bombs. We talk about the practical things that, you know, the bath bomb you can buy that makes me feel a little bit better or the book you can read that gave me new insight. But then I also hope the show itself is a soul bomb. I think it will. I'm so excited to listen to one. I was going through your Instagram, actually, and I was like trying to figure out which episode I wanted to start with. Um, And that is when I realized I was like, why does why does he look so familiar? And then I Googled you and I was like, oh my God, I was obsessed with you from Love, Simon. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I love that movie. I have watched it, oh my God, at least like five times since it's been available on HBO. I love it so much. I love it so much. And I love, um, I've talked about like uh, movies come up with a lot of my guests and just like how better these teen movies are for kids now than like what we had. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, ours were so, when I think back on those, they were so damaging to me. I mean, like the, the kind of conversation at the time was so, um, uh, everything was very, I want to say binary. It's not like fully the right way to describe it, but you just like very clearly fit into boxes. And I think, at the time, they thought they were maybe being a little bit more self-aware. And maybe they were. Like, maybe I watched those videos back and I'm like, oh, obviously this is satire, you know? But when I'm watching Not Another Teen Movie for the first time, I get that there's some kind of joke going on, but not really, you know? And it's like, there's that moment in that movie specifically where um, the one Black guy at the party 
meets the other one black guy and they have the conversation in the kitchen and they're like, oh, I'm the black guy at this party. And the joke being like, there's always only one black friend in these predominantly white spaces. But then it's also like, okay, but there's also only one black person in this movie full of white people, you know? like, (laughs) So how self-aware are you if you're making fun of the trope, but you're not doing anything to change the trope? And it kind of like, you go through these, all of those films from that time. And there was just a lot of stuff that was definitely picking up on what our culture was and just sort of reflecting it back. But in so doing, it was also cementing those identities and those roles and, um, and yeah, doing nothing to, to change them. So, I mean, that was something we were very aware of when we were on set for the movie. There wasn't a day that went by where someone wasn't like, I wish I had this film growing up or the work that we're doing here is important. You know, it was fun and it was light. It felt like summer camp, but it was also, there was an awareness that, there had never been an LGBT studio rom-com about teens, you know, like a mainstream straight to theaters um, studio film like this. And it was, I mean, yeah, I'm just so honored to be, to be a part of it. And I think that you bring up like a really interesting part too about like you were saying it felt like summer camp, but there was this awareness to it. And I feel like a lot of people that push back on this type of awareness assume it's going to be so hard and so much work. And when it's actually just like literally looking around being like, are we being inclusive? Are we being diverse? Are we like making sure everyone has a voice? And it's really, it's like three seconds. It's like your, it's like your audio checklist. It's really not that hard. I agree. But I do think like, I think. It's not that hard, but having to do it at all is is just a muscle that a lot of people don't have. And so mm. it feels like, I mean, it's so antithetical to, a, and then it also comes back to sort of like the inner workings of the industry in general, wherein I have now, I'm now on the other side of it. I'm putting together my own projects and I'm working with friends and people that I know. And you realize like, the reason people work with the people that they know is because there are so many infinite variables that happen when you're putting something together, when you're creating something. And if you can remove one variable by working with someone that you have a shorthand with or who you trust, whose creativity you understand, like why reinvent the wheel every single time you go? Making a movie is already so hard. Um, And so what happens is they just fall back on that because it's easier because it doesn't there's already so many other things that are taking up their time and and then the other component is it requires them to take a look at their lives and really ask the question why don't i have any women in my life who can do this this role you know obviously there are female camera operators why don't i know any obviously there are mm-hmm. female directors why don't i know i know plenty of directors i know plenty of writers why don't i know any um, showrunners of color or executive producers who have an LGBT experience. And then it makes you start to see like, <laughs> I'm complicit in building this world around me. And so I think it's so much easier to just pretend like it's not real. I'm not racist. So if I ha- just happen to only hire a bunch of white people, that's not because I'm racist. It's just because these are the people I happen. I would hire a black person if I knew one, you know? And it's like, yeah, they don't go through that thought process of like why is my world so homogenous to begin with yeah to do the unpacking of it Mm -hmm. is uh it is a task that a lot of people don't want to go on or aren't aware that they need to Mm -hmm. and like i always point to so awkward sex in the city um the the 
show itself has been around for over seven years now. And if I go back to the very first show, very first show, it is me and five other white women, yeah. <laughs> and we're all either straight or bi, and yes. that's it. And it's like that for like a good like half, like first six months of this show's inception, and then I start to realize like, ooh, yeah you aren't doing your job. Like, why is it just people that you don't? Why is everyone just white? Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to unpack. And I'm only telling this to my listeners just to be like, look, I'm not like combusting. Like, it's okay to admit (laughs) that you've like fucked up. It's important. Just don't be a part of the problem. Yeah. And it's also natural. That's the other thing is like, as evidenced by your experience, same thing happened to me. We're putting together the first you know, a couple of people to reach out to whenever you're launching a new podcast. Obviously, you start with the people you know. I mean, literally in any field, it's the same in tech. It's the same in, you know, you're always going to go first to the people who you know and who you trust and who will say yes, right? Like the podcast didn't exist for the first five or six interviews that we did. And so it's kind of hard to pitch to someone that you don't know because they're like, "Uh, what? Like, literally, what is this? Um. And the exact same thing. Yeah, it didn't take long before I realized every single person we booked was a gay man. And like, <laughs> it's like, oh, right. So this is exactly what has been happening. It's very natural. It's the process that even a person like me who is aware and is preaching, we need to have diversity, equity, and inclusion. All gay men is not diversity, right? That's homogeneity. So it makes sense now why someone, a straight white man in a position of power, for example, turns around and somehow there's all these straight white men surrounding him. And it wasn't malicious. It wasn't, you know, an intentional choice. It's just, that's what's happened. And, and that's okay. That's why we need to have people from different backgrounds in all these rooms. The idea there being that they will bring people from their own background into the room with them, you know, like they will contribute from their perspective. Um, So yeah, it's like, I think we have to also remove the value judgment from it. You're not a bad person for doing one thing. You're not a good person for doing another thing. It's just an observation. It's just an action that you did. And if your mission statement in life, or if your goal is to be creating an inclusive environment, then what are the steps that you're going to do to make sure that that happens? If you don't do anything, if you continue to be passive, it's not going to happen. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we're we're all living it. We're all like, it's a learning process and it's all very new. Um, and so we have to also give ourselves a break, you know, when we're when we're figuring out the learning curve. Absolutely. I think you said that very eloquently and just I would not have been able to say it like that. But it's just <laughs> that was perfect. That was chef's Thank kiss. You. Um, popped in my mind before I forget when you were talking about serums. Have you tried the ordinary yet? No, I don't know it. So, oh my God, it is amazing. And I, the backstory is like this guy used to work in like the beauty, like makeup, whatever. And he got so mad how everything was so expensive. Mm -hmm. So everything that is of his company is like $7. Whoa. So I just bought- Accessible skincare? And like, I have really sensitive skin. And I bought their lactic acid. I was like, let's just see. Yeah. Like truly saw results in like two days. Wow. No breakouts. Um, I'm about to buy like their whole like regimen in a second for like 30 bucks. Oh my gosh. That is amazing. But I was looking at it today. That's what made me think of it when you said like self-care and serums. And I was like, everyone has to know about this brand because yeah. when we're pop- like throwing like hundreds of dollars at Sephora and Ulta, which you can get 
this at both of those places. Um, it was just like it's affordable and it works. Like this is like mind blowing. Yeah, like, they've they've been lying to us. Well, we knew they were lying to us the whole time, but now like it's so someone's clear. giving a solution. Yeah. yeah, I have never heard of I've never heard of the ordinary. I mean, so much of skincare is exactly wrapped up in luxury and um, aspiration and self care in general is sort of like talk to a person who has to work three jobs just to keep the lights on about self-care. And they're like, LOL, I don't have time for self-care. You know, it's like such an Mm -hmm. indulgence or rather it's seen as an indulgence. And because of that, we, we have all these products that are marked up like crazy, you know, and a facial moisturizer that's $150 and you have to use it every day. And so you're like monthly spent, what you're spending a hundred dollars, $150 a month, $1,200 a year on your, on your moisturizer. It's just crazy. It's insane. It's so unfair. Uh, And yeah, like, I don't know if you've had a very similar experience, but like with COVID, I definitely had to step back and like look and like be like where, what is actually good self-care? What is self-care that uh, is kind of a lie? Uh, Because sometimes it can teeter like this, like a balance on a very specific line of like, I'm going to eat 50 chicken wings and do a (laughs) bath bomb. And I'm going to call that self-care or it's like, I'm going to eat five salads and then do a bath bomb. Mm-hmm. I also love bath bombs a lot too. They're, they're a um, guilty, not guilty pleasure. They are a pleasure. Of mine. Oh yeah. So they're much. good. They're a great invention. Oh, I did forget to ask what your doodle's name is. His name is Beckett. Beckett. I love it. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I do love doodles so much. Um, and we will talk about sex at one point, I promise. Uh, <laughs> I actually babysat uh, for a family that I hated, but I stuck around because they got a doodle. Mm. And the dog was a goddamn monster <laughs> that looked like a literal Muppet. Yeah. Because they were rich. They were one of those like Upper West Side families that they bought the dog, but they had, you could choose its like DNA. You could be like, what? this percentage poodle, this percentage like Labrador. Yeah. Which like, it's, that feels like a scam. It's so psycho. It's so psycho. But this dog, I swear to God, was the mo- most gorgeous animal I'd ever seen in my life. Like a real wow. life Muppet. Love. Yeah. I missed him. I still miss him to this day. But that family was awful and I never want to see yeah. him. <laughs> but I mean, Beckett is a Muppet. He would definitely love that we're talking oh, about yay. him right now. He may bark a little bit in the background because he's so desperate for attention. Oh, and that's totally okay, too. Uh, I tell people, like, this is just what remote, like, recording is now. Like, there have been cars going by yeah. back and forth that's probably being picked up on my side. Shit happens. It's the new I It's the new I way. I That's not something we need to, to add stress on to our lives with everything else. Totally. <laughs> so, um, not like a hard pivot, but a hard pivot. Sure. I think, if I remember correctly, Simone said you were going to talk about being perpetually single. Yeah. If you want to, we do not have to talk about that. I mean, it's basically all I can talk about <laughs> because it's my my lived reality. I mean, I think like I think a couple of things. I cuz I go through it with therapy with my therapist as well, you know. I think there are some elements where in my life from time to time has been set up to optimize something other than sex or romance or love and because of that that quadrant has sort of um, suffered or just like not has been kind of neglected a bit in the sense that, you know, when I left uh, Atlanta, I went up to college in New Hampshire. I went to Dartmouth and I knew going into that, that the school was not the most gay school in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, 
it was, it, I never really, there were, I'm sure, people who experienced really bad homophobia there, but that wasn't my experience. It just was more like, people will be friends with you, but we're not going to have sex with you. <laughs> like, all these straight boys or or closeted straight boys. Um, and I, and then also because it's in the middle of nowhere, there's no like city or urban environment surrounding it to kind of counteract that. Like if you're at, if you're at Harvard, you have Boston right there. Or if you're like at any of the New York schools, you're in one of the gayest cities in the world, mm-hmm. you know, like um, that, the, the surrounding area of Dartmouth call, is called the Upper Valley. There's not much up there, to be honest. It's a very small, rural, beautiful, but like quiet area, which is part of the reason why I picked it. Um, so that was kind of four years of very little romance. Whereas I went off to college thinking like, this is going to be it. This is going to be the beginning of your, uh, you know, the doors are going to, there's that Love, Simon scene where he goes off to college. He has that dance number in his head and like everything's great and college is fantastic. So it didn't happen there. And then I moved out to Los Angeles and LA is, I mean, I think anyone in any city would say this about where they live, but it is a particularly difficult place to date and to find love for any number of reasons and and sort of I have a lot of theories about it. But it just hasn't really been the place for me, I guess. I don't know. So I've just sort of like continued to be single for the majority of my adult life. And it's getting to the point, honestly, where, I mean, I am open to relationships. I am manifesting them. I am like putting myself out there in the pandemic in the form of apps. And I am like making it clear to friends, if you want to set me up with someone, I'm happy to have conversation or go on a date with them. I'm very open. But I'm also like, as with anything, it takes time. It takes effort. It takes money. It takes energy. And there are so many other things that I, that also require my full-time attention right now, that it's just, it, it becomes increasingly difficult for me to prioritize it over career, for example. Um, and so it kind of ends up, again, getting neglected, <laughs> at least for the time being. What are some of your theories about L.A.? I, I know nothing about L.A. I've never been. I'm also a huge fucking snob that I'm always mm-hmm. like, New York's better than L.A. Uh, right. <laughs> and I've, I've never been. like So I'm being like a complete dick about it. But I would love to hear some of your theories. I think there's quite a bit of parallel, actually, to what makes it difficult to date in New York as well, which is that with any city, you have tons of really ambitious people. And so in the same way that I'm prioritizing career, so many people that I'm surrounded by are also prioritizing their careers. And if you're com- if they're coming second for me and I'm coming second for them, it's just like that's not a great setup for potential success. If neither of us are prioritizing, at least if one of us is prioritizing the relationship at a time, at least we can kind of like keep the ball in the air. But I find there are times when like texts die or relationships fizzle just because neither of us really has the capacity to engage with that that week, you know? And it's like, I find myself re-engaging with people that I was speaking to months or even years ago because I'm like, oh, wait, I was into you. I was interested in pursuing that. And then what happened? I just got distracted or I didn't, yeah, I didn't prioritize it. Um, So I think there's a little bit of that. I think there's also, though, 
with LA specifically um, because of the material focus and material component, there is this constant in every quadrant of your life, this constant track in the back of your mind where you're like, could I be doing better? Could I have a better house? Could I have um, a cuter dog even? Could I have a nicer car? Could I have better clothes? Uh, Could I have a better career? And you're sort of surrounded by all these people who have more or less than you, but you're always evaluating yourself against um, what's ultimately an extreme wealth, right? Like if you're in a smaller city or a smaller town, the the high is not so far from the low. Whereas here in LA, like you're talking about a global market. You're interacting with people who have money, who are literally Prince Harry and Meghan live here. Okay. Like you have literal royalty as your potential neighbors or sort of like at least your co-city mates or whatever. Um, and this is the same thing in any city as well. And so you're kind of comparing yourself. I mean, if that's the goal, if that's the ambition, it's like, how do you even get there? And then all of a sudden the people who are, there's like some self-loathing that comes in there as well. And so someone who's at your level is not really as attractive to you as someone who's at the next level or who, who's at the next level or the next level. Um, and then you're constantly like weighing, am I where I want to be? You know, am I attractive to myself? Is this the person I want to be? And if you don't like who you are, if you don't like where you are, you're definitely not going to find someone who does like you attractive. You know, you're going to be like, what's wrong with you? You're into me? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like this internal work that you have to do. It's this feeling of like, if you're into me, you must have bad taste. (laughs) I don't trust your taste, you know, which isn't fully how I feel, but I just feel like these are the cycles that people are constantly going through um we're like one minute you're on the top of the world you have a movie coming out netflix just bought your tv show whatever it is and then the next day the movie bombed or the or the show got canceled or you know nobody wants to work with you you know it's like this constant roller coaster and everyone's on a roller coaster and so it's like i mean i'm giving you a very visual <laughs> analogy here that they won't be able to see but how do you match up those sign curves wherein you're both at the same place on the curve at the same time, wherein you're even in, this, in a place to entertain a relationship? Um, so this, that's my convoluted theory. <laughs> it's based in 100% anecdotal evidence. There's no, nothing I can cite, no sources I can point to, but that's sort of like how I'm feeling. Well, I think this makes a lot of sense. And I think there's definitely, like you said, parallels with LA and New York, especially ugh, especially with like the juxtaposition, juxtaposition mm-hmm. of wealth, where mm-hmm. it's truly like if you like I used to live on 101st and First Avenue, which is like technically the Upper East Side. Yeah. But uh it was deemed like like poor until you went down four yeah. blocks and hit 96th Street. And then all of a sudden you're like around like, mm -hmm, and you're just around like generational wealth that you'll never understand. I do wonder, the thing I love about New York and what I've always loved about New York um, is because like I'm sort of from the South too. I'm from Virginia and Mm -hmm. there is a lot Mm -hmm. of fakeness. Um, There's a lot of fake niceness. And Mm -hmm. once you move to New York, you have to pretend like to, you care about everyone in the South, I feel like. And that's a mm-hmm. huge generalization. And the thing about New York, and I don't know if it's true about LA, is no one cares about you in New York. 
No one. Yeah. You don't have to care about them. And obviously there's a huge sense of community though. Like when like shit hits the fan, like, oh, you need me to stay inside for six months for my neighbor. Yes. Like right. it's a huge sense of community and less individualism. But because of that bluntness, you get to kind of be more yourself, like mm-hmm. um, inside and outside, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if that's the same for LA. I feel like LA might have a little bit of that, like that fake niceness to it because and again, it's a huge generalization, but trying to get to say like the next step or like what is the next yeah. career move or et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if that's true or not because I've never been there. So I'm not going to make any huge like generalization like that. With LA, I think it's maybe a hybrid of those two. There's definitely that performance. And they're like, oh my gosh, and we should hang out. And then we'll, I'll never text you. You know, like there's a lot of that. Um, but I think with, with LA, it kind of comes more from you really never know what's going to happen. Someone can blow up tomorrow. Like the barrier to entry here is so different and the criteria is so different for success than it is in a place like New York, which is so credentials based and so like pedigree or CV or like, where did you go to school? What experience do you have? You know, do you have the tools to do this job or not? LA, it's more like literally anything could happen on any day. And the person who you were just rude to yesterday is all of a sudden now the decision maker in the conversation that you're having with them the next day. And so I feel like that ambition is this underlying thing of like, nobody ever wants to rock the boat. Nobody ever wants to be the person to like get on your bad side. And then, you know, two years down the line, they need something from you. So it, it can be, it can be hard to get a real read, but I think that's also part of the the trickiness with dating here is like, what I find myself always asking, what do you want mm-hmm. from me? You know, what? Yeah. And even if I knew what that was, even if you told me that's not sex, that's not a relationship, that would be preferable to me wondering what it is that you, I can tell you want something from me because mm-hmm. you continue to text me or you continue to respond when I text you. But I'm, but we're not quite going anywhere. We're kind of sta- stalled out here. Uh, so that, that can be really frustrating as well. Do you ever feel as if you could be like, literally ask them that? Like, I've done that before in text being like, what is this? What are you doing? Yeah. And maybe that's part of the reason why, like, that was another thing that I was going to say with, with dating is like, how much of it. So I had a therapist once ask me, um, because I said something about no, no one ever comes up to me. You know, pe- people don't approach me at a bar or people don't like. I mean, does anyone do this, like come up and give you their number? Like, is anyone that forward anymore? But even if they were like, that's never happened in my life. Um, and my therapist at the time asked me how I was engaging with the world around me in a day to day basis. And I was kind of like, I don't even know how to answer that question. But over time, I've come to realize when I'm walking down the street, when I'm walking through a grocery store, when I'm at a bar, if I see someone coming towards me, I avert my eyes. I look away. I look down. Ah. I close myself off. I create a wall. I create a separation between the two of us. And it's like, I didn't even realize I was doing that. I wasn't even aware of that. And that doesn't mean like now if I make eye contact with someone, they're going to be like, oh, my God, want to get married? But like 
they're definitely not going to say hello if you see look them in the face and then look away and don't make eye contact while you pass them. You know, like mm-hmm. that's a clear sign of don't talk to me. And so if that's what I'm putting out into the world, maybe that even unconsciously, maybe that's what's being received. I didn't think I was doing that, but maybe that's what what people are seeing and what people are hearing. And so I kind of that's sort of how I feel like I'm like, where are all, how is all of this affecting every other element of my life? What are the subconscious signals that I'm putting out into the world? Um, and just like I have this question of what do you want from me? Are they picking up something from me that I don't realize I'm putting out there? Are they, am I maybe putting out friend vibes and they're, they're like, oh, this person is obviously not interested in me because of the sheer number of emojis that he sends in a single text, (laughs) you know? And so I've been trying to interrogate some of those things, but I do want to become more direct in my life. I just hate sounding like a psycho. I hate being like, do you want to date me? You know, like I don't want to be that crazy person, but I also am like, am I, am I crazy? I feel like there's something here. Well, it is really, really hard. And I, I, anyone who's listening and to you too, like to not be a, to, uh, put blame on yourself for that. It's hard. It took me years to get to that point of being like, what is this? What's going on? I always tell people that are on the podcast, because everyone always says like, you have to love yourself first before anyone can love you. And I actually personally don't believe that. I don't believe Mm. you have to love yourself first. I think you just have to know what you want. Right. And so I think that was going to be my next question was, do you know what you want in in your partner, in someone that you're in a, would enter into a relationship with? I, I have been interrogating that myself a lot lately as well, because I think part of growing up and part of really wondering what that means is also wondering where those things came from. Mm-hmm. You know, why am I interested? Why am I attracted to a certain type of person? Or why am I interested in a certain type of relationship? Is that because that's what I really want or what works best for me? Or is it because that's what was programmed into me to think that I wanted or that I needed or that this is what a successful relationship looks like? Um, I think if you asked me that a lot, if you asked me that a while ago, I would have asked, like if you asked me in college, for example, I would have said, I want someone who's taller than I am, you know, 6'2 to 6'5". Um, I want someone who is athletic and, uh, you know, conventionally attractive. Uh, race doesn't really matter as much, but I would have said, like, definitely want them to be a similar matched level of intellect or smarter, as accomplished as I am or more, um, sort of like my socioeconomic class or higher. I would have said all of these things that are completely surface and also based on this heteronormative idea of, like, finding a man, you know, I want someone who is the man of the house and who is going to be sort of like provide that role, that paternal role, both to me and my children, like, wow, daddy issues. Okay. (laughs) Um, and I unpacked a lot of that and I started to understand that my, that my relationship with that was coming from a heteronormative perspective. Um, And now, and then also you get older and like, you realize that the hotter the person is, the sadder they probably are inside. (laughs) Um, And I'm like, now I'm like, if you ask me, I would say, I want someone who is engaging. I want someone who's intellectual. I want someone who reads, which is like crazy that I even have to have that on my list. But 
I want someone who's going somewhere in their field, whatever that means for them. I want someone who is open and curious and inquisitive and constantly looking to grow and better themselves and better the world around them. Yeah, basically point being like my desires have shifted almost completely away from a anything physical or uh, material and 100% to to personality and sort of like all of the things that actually matter more. No, I get that. And it's good that you know like what you want because I think that's like really, really important. And actually my guest Calvin last week was talking about he's very similar and just like knows what he wants and he's a comedian and writer. And so Mm. we were talking about how it's really hard to be like an artist and be in a long-term relationship. But um, so he would really love doing like a long distance relationship because he was able to set and carve out time for the specific person while also having all this time to do his creative endeavors. And I think that's like to know that that could be an option too. I actually know a couple of people that are creatives that are in long-term, long-distance relationships, and that kind of works for them. Well, and I'm finding that as as the years go by, I'm also realizing I've become self-sufficient. You know, Mm, I don't mm -hmm. need a person. In fact, I don't want a person in my space all day, every day. Um, I'm very whoopy in this way. I don't want someone in my house, you know, like Whoopi Goldberg on marriage. I don't want a man in my house. I don't want a person in my house. and I'm very like, I'm very similar. I think the distance and that kind of element that we now have, both in the term, in terms of like 2020 technology, you know, and the ways that we've developed socially and culturally, there are, there are people who I've spoken to or who I've sort of like, who are orbiting, if you will, in other countries or who I've gone on dates with when they were here in LA and now they're no longer here. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm still into you and I'm still into this potential, but also like, what does that, what does that look like? You know, how do we take that next step and do we take that next step or do we kind of wait until things are more aligned? You know, I don't know. It's just, there are so many factors now that make it easier to engage with people that you wouldn't have been able to engage with before. So like in theory, it's definitely easier maybe to find someone than before. I don't know. Because the flip side is like, you just would have married the person who lived across the street. You, ha- you just kind of like keep, you keep the ball in the air with these people in the hopes that one day maybe it lands and in, in, in you're in the same city, you're in the circumstances where you can date each other. But as a result, you're kind of just like juggling all these half relationships that aren't really going to go anywhere and that aren't fulfilling for sure. Um, and are also like neither person is willing to commit or be vulnerable enough to be like, I'm into you Mm -hmm. because then you sound like a crazy person we've never met before. And our entire relationship has been DMing through Instagram or text messages or FaceTime occasionally, you know? Well, if they, in my my personal opinion, if someone's going to be like, oh, Clark is crazy for asking or saying that he's into me, then that's just like a shitty person because (laughs) it's. To me, when it comes to, and I say this as I never, I did Tinder and OkCupid, but mm. I never went on an online date. Um, yeah. I would use them for emotional uh, shit, which is not okay, uh, as yeah. I would learn later in life. Um, 
But to me, it's implied that like, oh, I'm DMing you. I'm constantly talking to you. Oh, if we switched over to text, it's implied that yeah. like we are into each other. So if you were to say, or if I were to say, hey, I'm into you, and then they ghost you, then it's like, ooh, no, never mind. Um, Nothing is implied is what I've learned. Damn. In dating. See that? Because you, ne- because, and this is sort of comes back to the what do you want from me? Mm-hmm. Because I've had a number of situations where I was also dating someone I thought we were going on dates, you know, we met on an app, we matched on a dating app. It was pretty clear that we weren't friends, you know, I don't source friends from Tinder <laughs> or like any dating app. Um, and then at some point, it became this question of like, I was ready to move forward. We were three, four, five dates in. And this person the whole time thought we were, or well, he was, I think he was gaslighting me, but he thought we were not. He thought we were being friends. He thought we were hanging out as friends. Oh, no, that's bullshit. And I'm like, we're one on, we're, it's just the two of us. Every time we've met, it's just been the two of us. I met you through a dating app. We have mutual friends and we have like people in common for sure, but we didn't, you know, like the initial interactions were through this, this, what I thought was pretty clear, we're here to date. And then I thought it was implied. I thought it was clear. And then here we are. And he's like, oh yeah, I, I had no idea this whole time. I used to babysit for a family off and on for eight years. And the mom is an actress and the dad works, I'm going to say finance because that's not what he does. And her, they had, they had a rocky first couple of years. They were I, um, not high school sweethearts, but they did meet when they were 18 and 19. And mm. she tried a different career first, then realized she wanted to act. So they had a rough couple of years and like almost got divorced. But now mm. like she, I would, I, when I came in to help is when she had to go to like Canada for like a week or months right. and I'd come in and help. Right. And it really was just like watching them communicate to each other of like, you need to do this for your career. We have everything set in place. You come first. Like, I think that happens right. a lot in, conver- in relationships and no one's willing to admit that, like, sometimes someone's coming first and someone's coming second. But as long as you know, right. like, when you say, like, the roller coaster, that, like, you're either riding this together or it's a very, like, uh, fair and equal switch, if that makes sense. Right. Right. Yes. The flower and the gardener. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. I think the other thing that I'm thinking that I like, that I want to make sure I say, because I go through all of these thoughts that we've basically had and then some on any given day, like a hundred times in a given day. But there is this other element of me that's like, because I'm so self-sufficient and because I've had to be single and like get through the day, get through my life. There's also this other side where I'm now seeing a future where if I was single, for example, um, for a longer period of time, or if I didn't get married, or if I wasn't in a committed relationship, that I'm that I'm okay with. Not To say okay with that is not even the right way to say it. It's like, I am full on my own. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine said this at her wedding, which, which I thought was so beautiful, because it was a Texas wedding. And even though it was a liberal wedding, I've spoken about this before somewhere, but even though it was like a liberal wedding, you know, it's like, the South is the South, and Texas has these vibes of like, tradition and she was um she wasn't 22 when she got married you know but what she said at her wedding was i'm not going to say that 
my life is great because of you. My life was already great. My life would have continued to be great if we never met. You know, if we never met and we never got married, my life would have been amazing. And everyone at the wedding, you know, the people who weren't from L.A., the people who were like Texas people were like, ah, like shook by that. (laughs) But it's so true because it's like you should not be we should not be thinking about relationships as these elements that are going to fix us, a person who is going to make us whole. I'm already whole. And what I hope is that I find another whole person to enhance my life or to make it better than it already is, but not someone who's going to fix the, you know, and that has been something that I think I'm always looking for a lesson. I'm always looking for, you know, what is the universe trying to tell me from this experience? And I think if I was going to manufacture one out of my per- my perpetual singlehood is that it's become it's been me being learning how to be comfortable alone Mm -hmm. me learning how to be self-sustaining and self-sufficient and how to fill myself up rather than looking for someone else to fix me or or fill me up or you know sort of like make me valid or make my experience on this earth valid um and I think I'm there. I think I'm at a point where I'm like, yeah, if I was a single dad with a couple of kids and, you know, not married, like I could see a very full life like that. Yeah, I think I'm there. I don't know. I mean, I would still like a boyfriend. <laughs> but you know what I mean? This is like the journey. This is the constant back and forth is like opening myself up and being willing to accept whatever the universe brings and not closing myself off to anything, but just truly being grateful for the gifts that I have and not feeling like I'm lacking. Yeah. And like, that's like three fourths of the work though. Like, you Mm. know that you're full, you know what you want, you know what you contribute to yourself and to like the world around you. And like majority of people do not know that. And so the fact that you already know that I think and the fact that you're like very, very wise, like you're very, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like you, you're very well aware of your surroundings and what you give and bring into anything. And I think that can be one, yeah. intimidating, but two, mm. also just very freeing. I'm just like, you know, yes. like you're okay. And I also was just thinking like, I was like, oh, I was Googling him earlier. I do wonder if people are sometimes intimidated by you, which Fuck mm. them. If they're intimidated, then like fuck them. You because yeah. you shouldn't have to feel like you need to make yourself lesser or smaller than anything to, especially right. in a a, a, a a romantic relationship and with friends. I'm gonna put that out yes. there too. But that is something that would always be said to me when I was younger because I had a boyfriend for like one month in ninth grade and then would not yeah. date, like really, really date until. First year in New York City, second year in New York City, maybe. So like a huge, like huge span of time where you're just like, oh, am I not enough? Is something wrong with me? What's going on? And my parents would be like, you're just too intimidating. Like you're smart and you're pretty and you're funny. It's just too much. And it's just like, what the fuck does that even mean? Like I know that sounds like a perfect (laughs) package. Um, thank you. I know. But then you kind of learn like, oh, that I just don't want to be with people like that. So you're cutting yes. out so much bullshit knowing like that's not someone I want to be with if they can't handle like my resume and who I am and what I know and what I do. Yeah, it's mutually beneficial in that way where which is which is also part of what I feel about L.A. in general is like they're not looking at me and I'm not looking at them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's basically like me in, in Equinox where 
for a friend of mine, the first, I don't go there anymore, but at one point I used to, and a friend was like, I, w- I could never work out there. The people are too hot. And I'm like, that's because you think they're looking at you. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, they are not. You go into an Equinox and everyone is staring at themselves. <laughs> There's not, you're invisible in Equinox. Everyone is invisible to each other in Equinox. Um, and so it's like, oh, right. That's my, that's like an allegory for LA in general, where the guys who are hot but empty are not interesting to me. And I'm not the kind of hot or like body type that they want anyway. So it's like, we're both not looking at each other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But yeah, I do think that there is an element. I've also gotten that like being self-assured and knowing what you want and knowing who you are. Like, I don't have any questions about that. I have plenty of things that I'm working through and that are, that are issues in my life, but that's not one of them. And I had a friend who told me when he first met me, he was like, you're very discerning. I feel like that was the vibe that I got from you right away was like, oh, there." he was like, I found you attractive. And I thought like, oh, this could be a person that I could potentially date. But literally within the first couple of minutes of meeting you, I knew you were discerning enough to not be interested in me at all. Like that was the vibe that I got from you. And I look back on that time and I was like, I was not even thinking about that at all. <laughs> like, I don't know where you picked up on that. I don't know. I don't know how that's what I was project. I don't know how that came across, but that's very interesting. That's an, that's an interesting note to receive. <laughs> and that's kind of, I think what I was getting at with like, how am I putting myself out to the world? Because yeah, maybe there are people who, whether consciously or unconsciously have seen me and been like, oh yeah, there's no way that person's going to be interested in me at all. So whether I'm interested in them or not, I'm not even going to try because that person is, you know, so confident, so like ambitious, so focused. There's no way I'm ever going to be enough or interesting enough to that person. Um, so I'm trying to work on like, what do I project? Um, just so that like there are just so that I'm not unintentionally turning someone off that I might be interested in. But I've also learned now it's funny because with Love, Simon, I'm. I'm not famous. Like, I'm not a celebrity. I'm not, I do not have trouble walking down the street. I do not have trouble shopping in the grocery store. Um, I would say I'm somewhat known. I'm occasionally recognizable. It's sort of the experience you had. It's like a lot of people know they know me from somewhere, but they're not sure if that's from a movie or TV or if that's from like camp. You know, it's sort of like, did we go to high school together is sort of the vibe. Yeah. And um, for most people, however, most gay people, if I'm famous to anyone or if I'm known by anyone, it's going to be gay people because it was a gay movie and I'm a gay like actor. And so it's this weird thing of like to most people, I'm not known or it doesn't matter at all. I'm only I'm the most known to the people in my dating pool. <laughs> ah, you know, yeah, like yeah. the direct demo that I would be interested in dating is also the direct demo that I'm most likely to be known by. And that's fine. It doesn't like again, I, even in being known by those people, it's not a known where it's like, "Oh my god, Brad Pitt." It's more just like, a, "Oh yeah, I saw you in that movie." Um but it does mean that sometimes people come to the date with a little bit more knowledge of me 
than I have of them. Like I don't have anything other than what they put on their profile, but they have some sort of understanding of me from what they've Googled or what they've, or what they expect or what they've read or whatever. Um, and so I've learned to try to be less uh, strict on my first date with like, did they pass the test or do they, do they check any of the boxes? And I usually try, unless it feels like it's definitely not going anywhere for both of us, I usually try to entertain a second date just because, you know, maybe they're nervous or maybe I'm nervous or, you know, yeah, maybe they do think that there's something more to me than there is because of what they've brought into, the, you know, I try to think of the first date as like, we're getting to know each other and we'll see what happens on the second or third and then go from there. Have you had anyone that's like on the first date, it's like, I know who you are. I love this. I love doing Glee. I love you on that. Uh, mm-hmm. You should have won to, what is it? Pentatoxic? Yeah, pentatonics. I can't stand them. Um, you should have won. Uh, like, have you ever had someone like come to the date like that and you're just kind of like, okay, like, here we go? Yeah, totally. Really? And right after Love, Simon, there was a period where, okay, so, th- so this is the other thing with, with LA. Um, I mean, the gay community in general has a history of being racist, obviously. And, you know, the concept of like no fats, no femmes, no Asians, no blacks on Grindr is a very con like a thing that we've been talking about for years. Um, but I saw, I was also working in tech at the time of love Simon coming out. So I was very data driven at the, at that time, but I saw a marked increase in my matches on Tinder in the immediate months following the release of the film and almost exponentially. So, so like if my match rate before the film was like one in 10 afterwards, in like the three to six months directly afterwards, it was closer to like four or five. So like going from a 10% match rate to like a 40 to 50% match rate. Um, And obviously that is because now people, you know what I mean? Like the, the inflection point coinciding directly with the release of the film can't be a coincidence, especially in a city like LA. Um, I'm sure there were some other factors, new people moving into the city and like all these other things. But there was sort of a series of dates that I went on right after the movie came out that was like, oh, okay, this isn't a date. This is a meet and greet. This isn't going anywhere. You just wanted to have dinner with this person that you recognized from the film. And we're only talking about stuff from the movie. We're only talking about like acting or, or, or maybe even you're telling me your proximity to the industry or like what your dad does or what your friend does. But this isn't really like, developing into anything. And yeah, that was something that I just kind of had to be like, you know what? A date is a date and it's good to get up to bat because it helps you sort of like learn how to present yourself on a date more regularly. But yeah, that was a, that was a big part of, and it kind of turned me off to dating for a long time. Cause I was like, do I want to do a meet and greet tonight? Do I want to talk like, ugh. but also you never know. Maybe the person just wants to get that all out of their system. And then maybe there is a connection that happens beyond that. Well, I mean, also just like the more we talk, the more it's like, oh, there's like a lot of barriers and not a bad way. Barriers and just Mm -hmm. like you have this resume. There is a potential of like they just are going on the stage because they think that like you are from Love, Simon. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's very fair of you to be like, I am already kind of partially guarded because this is something that is very important to me personally and then to allow yes. someone in 
that vulnerably is huge to not have it be taken advantage of. So I can totally yeah. see why you're like, I like, what do you like? What do you want from me? And I can guarantee you, Caitlin, we'll we'll title this. <laughs> what do you want from me? Like, I can already see it. Yeah. And, but I think that's very fair. And like, I remember when I was younger, I never understood why like celebrities only dated celebrities. But then it's like, well, yeah, yeah because there are like, maybe these are the only people that I can truly trust. Like all of a sudden you're not sure. Like, are people trying to use you, trying to get something yep. from you? And I think that's like very scary of to have to put that on top of already just dating, which is already truly the hardest thing that we have to do. Like yes. when I was single, I was like, can we just all like mate? Like, can that just like be what we do? Like, why do we have to? Yeah. It's so hard. It's so hard. It's so it hard. Is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with, with the celebrity thing too, it's like when you become any level of known, as soon as you step behind the curtain and see the way the sausage is made, you all of the magic immediately goes away. And you immediately realize like, oh, right. Celebrity exists exclusively in the experience of the person who sees me as a celebrity. I don't change my lived experience in my day-to-day. -day. doesn't change the way I move and operate around my house. doesn't change. I'm still the same person. It's just that, like, celebrity is something I witness someone else experience when they engage with me. I don't experience it myself, mm -hmm. if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, totally. Right? And um, I actually compare it a lot to, um, to race and to gender or sexuality. Literally any perceived identity, which is to say that someone else's perception of my race is not the same as my own racial identity. They see me as a Black person and they have an experience with what that means for me to be Black, what they think about Black people or their experiences with Black people in the past, positive, negative, all these things. But none of that has anything to do with who I actually am, right? And and who I actually am, how I experience my chosen identity, how I relate to my race or how I engage with my race doesn't affect how they perceive me either. And so it, I started to see like, that is why, yeah, exactly. You want to date someone who has at least some kind of shared experience, who understands the glamour that you see from the outside in is manufactured. It's not experienced. Yeah. And it's like, we all have to remember Britney Spears is lucky, you know? Like, we all, <laughs> she was speaking truth there. She, yes, she wrote it all out for us. We, and we put, yeah, we put a lot on celebrities and then we act like it's not a job, but it is, like, every part of it is. And then the, and then yes. you, like, you, um, you touched on how, like, literally everything is a construct in our lives, like, literally everything mm -hmm. celebrity, race, uh, mm -hmm. sexuality, time is a construct. We're mm -hmm. about to have time mm -hmm. moved all of a sudden uh, in a month. Um, mm -hmm. and just to add all of that, like on top of everything, I'm just literally just wanting to go on like a Tinder date and have it be real. Like, I just feel like <laughs> everything you're feeling right now is just so very valid. Well, this, okay. So this episode has been great. Oh, thank I you. I love this. And we've. What a blast. Oh, so I would love to have you back too. And I always ask like, is there anything you still want to talk about? I would say the only thing I want to sort of leave people with, which is sort of the thing that I'm kind of coming back to with my podcast over and over again, which is this idea that we're not fully formed as individuals and we never will be. And the experience as, and, and everybody knows this and everybody sort of like has engaged with this in one way or another in the form of like some cliche aphorism, like the, it's not the journey, it's, it's not the destination, it's the journey, right? I just want to reiterate that this process of self-care and this process of self-love 
is a process. It's not a destination. It's not something that you ultimately one day wake up and it's like, great, I've solved that issue. And that means because it's a practice that some days you'll be great at it and some days you won't. And to make space for both, to be generous with yourself when you're good and generous with yourself when the days are bad. Um, and, and, and kind of to, if I could make anything my, the hill that I want to die on, it's to remove the value judgment that comes with the way that we experience our entire lives. You know, you're not a good or bad person because of the things you've done or the life you've lived. It's just an objective truth. These are just objective facts. And if we can sort of like separate that value judgment from that, that big value judgment component, which is obviously like the moral thing that's sort of driving us below the surface. Am I a good person? Then we can start to parse out some of these things like, okay, if it's not about being good or bad, it's just about existing in the best version of myself that I can. Then maybe you can be more um, patient with yourself. You can be more the self-love and the self-care will come naturally. And that's kind of the thing that I've learned from the, the few interviews that I've done so far on the podcast uh, is just that it's about being generous with yourself. Yeah. And it's so hard to do, right? We're so afraid to be generous with ourselves and give ourselves space or time. It's really hard, mm -hmm. especially like that's what's been really interesting about COVID for me was just, again, having the space and time for myself of like how much of myself I was missing or like not taking care of or like actively yeah. abusing um, yeah. and just getting to see like what it looks like to be generous and like um, nice to myself again, like yeah. talking to yeah. myself nicely. Yeah, just stop the track. You know, the negative track that goes in your brain, it does not serve you. And you have control over it. Yeah. Don't you just like feel like all the feels? I did after that. I felt very like energized after that. There's something so, so energizing and so cathartic about just like true honesty and vulnerability. And I was actually talking to a friend like a week or two ago about how at least like when I was brought up, like sensitivity and like being open and honest with your feelings was kind of treated like, like a bad thing, like a con, like a personality trait that you don't want. When in reality, it's like such a strength to be so open and so real. And I think it's part of the reason why a lot of adults uh, my age, older, have a really hard time communicating because to communicate, you have to be honest and vulnerable. Um, that's such a weird aside for this podcast. That's a, a solo episode on its own. I just keep trading my intros and outros like many episodes. I hope you love it. And I hope you loved Clark. I did. I'm a, I am was already obsessed with him. I actually fangirled a little bit uh, before <laughs> the episode started because I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. Like I realized like why I knew him. Um, anywho, remember to go subscribe to Soul Bomb by Clark Moore and go follow him on Instagram at Mr. Clark Moore and go listen immediately. Start from the first episode and go through there. It's you're going to love it and you're just going to feel especially with like the cooler temperatures coming on. Like you're going to feel like you're just like being like embraced in a nice warm sweater by like the love of others. I'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.